giveaway. Are, are Clem or Felicia in here? Is Felicia in here? Where's Clem and Felicia? Are they in here? They are not. Clem's working. She's teaching. Felicia found out that she's having twins this week. I know. Come on. So I've got a $10 iTunes gift card. We're going to make sure that they get that because they, we know they're going to need to be downloading some videos for Ray Lynn because in about nine months, they're going to be saying, Ray Lynn, you watch this. I'll be right back. Right? Or, or if you've hung around Ray Lynn for any amount of time, you know what's probably going to happen is Ray Lynn's going to push play for them and say, I'll take care of it. I'll be right back. Right? Because Ray Lynn is in charge wherever she is. She is sweet as can be. So we're excited for the Hefferins and uh, for their exciting news. If you've been on Facebook, you can see some of those pictures. It's neat stuff. So, hey, I was at a pastor's gathering on Tuesday, and Pastor David Ford of Newtown United Methodist Church, great pastor, great church in our area, and uh, he just got back from a missions trip to Cuba, and there the, the Methodist Church in Cuba is exploding with growth. Just a few years ago, there were only just a few hundred, and now there are tens of thousands of people. There's, God is doing amazing things in that country through the United Methodist Church. It's not the same Methodist Church that's here. It's a separate organization and entity uh, there in Cuba. And so some of the people uh, here in the States went to support them, and they were doing training and pastor's conference. They have more people. People are just making decisions for Christ. People are being healed supernaturally. It's just it's amazing what's happening there. It's a communist country. They cannot stop it. They, they've just decided they've got to get out of the way of it, and it's just exploding with growth. And one of the stories that, were, that, that he was told down there is that this pastor was, you know, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a poor country, and so there's, they don't have access to, to modern things that we do. And so this one pastor to get from, they pastor multiple churches because they're not enough trained leaders. So he has a horse, and he rides from village to town to town to village to preach and pastor in all these churches, right? So he's on the road. He's on his horse. He's riding on to the next town. He's got a service to get to. And the Holy Spirit speaks to his heart and says, I want you to get down off your horse and I want you to preach to that cow in the field. This is a true story, true story. And the guy keeps riding along, right? He's saying, I'm suffering from fatigue, right? Because I should not be having these thoughts from, from God. And, and, but he recognizes, hey, this is the voice of the Lord in my heart. I cannot, I cannot deny it. So, right, he stops, he looks around, true story, to make sure no one's watching, right? Because that's usually what we do when we have to stand up for Christ, right? He's looking around to make sure no one's watching. And he, he gets off. He climbs over the fence. He goes out into the field. There's one cow out in this field all by itself. And he starts preaching to this cow. He starts out. He says, cow, you know this life that you're living is going to lead straight to hell. You were raised. You know better, right? He preached. He went on and on. He's reading verses. And he, and, and he just keeps preaching this message to this cow. And he's starting to get the hang of it right. And he's just going for it. Right in this, this is a true story. Right in the middle of this field. And this cow's just right staring at him. Staring at him. So he gets done with his sermon, right? Takes up an offering, but nobody gave. He gets back onto the horse, rides to the next town months Later, he's at, a, he's at a conference, a big area conference, and he gets up to the pulpit to begin to preach. There's thousands of people that are gathered together for this conference, and a man stands up in the middle of this conference and shouts out, I know you! Now, it's a communist country, right? So people are nervous. They're thinking this is a, someone from the government that's going to make an accusation against him. Maybe they're getting ready to be raided. They don't know what's going to happen. And then all, and, and right in the next breath, this is what the man says. You're the preacher that preaches to the cows. And he looks out, he finds the guy in the crowd, and he says, how do you know that? I've never told that story to anybody. And this guy, middle of this conference, thousands of people, he says, because I went to that field that day to steal that cow. I've been a thief my whole entire life. I saw you coming. I hid in the bushes and when you got down off of your horse I thought to myself how on earth does he know that I'm here and then you you didn't walk towards me you walked towards the cow and I thought to myself great somebody else is going to steal the cow before I got it and then you start to preach to that cow and it's exactly what I needed to hear I gave my heart to Christ in that bush on that day, I have not stolen a thing since, and I'm living my life for Jesus Christ. Come on! It's a true story. 
True story. It's good, isn't it? It takes courage to be a Christ follower. You cannot be a follower of Christ and not be someone who is courageous. If he had not on that day had the courage to do what he knew that God was asking him to do, could God have intersected that man's life somewhere else? Sure he could have, but he would not have been a part of such an incredible moment. We are called to be courageous people as followers of Christ. That's why the band launched out that song, we're launching a new series this weekend. We're taking it through the next several weeks. We won't back down. Come on. It takes courage to be a follower of Christ as a person, but churches should also be a place of courage. We have to have courage individually, but we also have to have courage collectively. Just this past weekend, if you were here for the Easter service, at the end of the service, there was an opportunity for people to make a decision for Christ. And Becca, if you, if you were here, you saw Becca came forward. It was a great moment. It's a family that's been coming from West Point. They've been attending the Williamsburg campus for several weeks. They came here. They've been here a few weeks. Come on, last weekend she took her first spiritual breath. And at the end, right, we said, if you made a decision for Christ, there were some other hands that went up, but she was the only one who had the courage to come forward to be the first one at the communion table. So at the end of the service, I was talking with her. I say, how do you feel? What was that like? She said, well, to be honest, it felt a little awkward. I felt a little conspicuous. And I said, good. Because tomorrow, people are not going to turn the other way and bow their heads for you to be a Christian. There has to be courage in your heart if you're going to be a Christ follower. And we might start our moments for decisions for Christ in private ways with heads bowed, but at some point we ask you to do something public. We ask you to do something declarative. Because if you can't find courage in this room, how are you going to find courage out there in the world? And so she found some courage that night, come on, and it set her on her way. You've got to have courage if you're going to be a Christ follower. And churches, by the same way, we as a collective, as a church family, we have got to be willing to be courageous. We are going to cover some ground in this series that's controversial. We're going to cover some ground in this series that churches, they just stay away from it. But we're not going to be because at the City Life Church, we are a courageous church. So we're going to tackle some topics as a church together in this series because we believe that there's a message that we have that God has given to us and we're going to preach some of those in this series. If it's in this book, come on, it needs to be in the air of the sanctuaries across this nation and around the world and we want to be one of the churches that says we're not afraid to preach the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that that means for you and I. So what if 10 years from now as a church we were able to send a postcard back to ourselves? What if 10 years from now as a church, we were able to get together and through some miraculous way, we were able to write a postcard and send it back to ourselves and we got it today, what would it say? Think about all the things that are gonna happen over the next 10 years. All the lessons we're gonna learn together as a church. All the things that we're gonna discover. All the mistakes that we're gonna make. Come on, we're gonna make mistakes along the way that we would like to tell ourselves something and the postcard comes in the mail today. I think there would be lots of things on that postcard, but I believe with all of my heart, one of the things that we would say to ourselves is don't back down. Do not lose heart as a church. Be courageous. Be courageous. I'd like to think that would be the first line. Be courageous. We are going to be courageous at the City Life Church. Look at this verse. This is our life verse. We put a life verse up for sermons. Sometimes that verse will last for the whole series. This one's going to last for the whole series for the next few weeks. This is Acts 28, 31. Speaking of Paul, it says, Boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. Not because of their cowardice, but because of his courage. That we have a message that we're supposed to bring to this region as a church family. And we are going to be courageous. We want God to be able to say these same words about us. That the City Life Church, come on, boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ in every city where they were, and no one tried to stop them. We want those words to be spoken over you, and we want it to be spoken over this house. Come on, in Jesus' name. So here's some of the things that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. We're talking about overeating tonight. I know, I just ruined all of your dinner plans for after the service. 
I know, and I don't feel bad about it one bit. Somebody was in here earlier when we were going through the slides, and they had a part in the service, and they said, at what part of the service am I supposed to participate? Because they said, I'm leaving right after that. I don't want to hear anything that you have to say. We're talking about overeating tonight. We're going to talk about overworking next week. We're going to talk about oversexing the week after that. Why is it the world dominates the conversation in the world about human sexuality? We're tired of it. God has something to say. He created it, and he wants us to understand how he created it. And I'm telling you, you're going to hear words on that week in church that you've never heard spoken in a church before. And it should not be the exception. It should not be the exception. We're going to be a courageous church. And then we're going to wrap it up with a, with a, a message on overspending. Overeating tonight, overworking, oversexing, overspending. We might be a church of five by the time we're done with the series. But we're going to have the five most courageous people in the whole peninsula. Come on. Come on. All right. This is where we're starting tonight. Our problems with overeating are not because of a lack of health education, but because of a lack of the courage of conviction. Come on. We're coming right out of the gate. Our problems with overeating are not because of a lack of health education, but because of a lack of the courage of conviction. There has never been a time in history where information about living healthy has been more accessible. There has never been a time in history where the medical field has been as advanced as it is today. There has never been a time in history where gym membership is more affordable. Planet Fitness, what is it, like 10 bucks a month? Right? I'm Pastor Fred, so I sign a lot of my emails PF. I love that. All the t-shirts have PF on them. Every time I walk in there, I'm like, hello, all my people. Right? <laughs> How you doing? How you doing? It has never in all of history been easier for us to understand what it means to be healthy. That's not our problem. We, especially in the church, we don't lack education about health and fitness. What we lack is the courage of conviction. Listen to this verses. These are in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It says, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days. I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard. That's the New Living Translation up there. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, that means they hold grudges, slanderers without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, here it comes, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to the form of religion but denying its power. Avoid these people. That's a problem for many of us. That means we've got to stay away from ourselves. Avoid these people, Paul says. Now, what does he say when, he, when he's talking about they have a form of religion, but they deny its power? It means lots of things, but one of the most important things that it means, it means that people say they believe one thing, but they live a different way. They deny the power of God to govern how they live. They deny, they refuse, they hold at arm's length the power of God that could be at work in our lives to transform us to be the people that we believe to be. We say we believe this, but we live this way. And it's rampant in the church, and it should not be, especially when it comes to taking care of our physical bodies. We cannot be a church that has a form of religion but denies the power of God. We have to believe that the power of God is just as concerned about the welfare and the well-being of our physical body as it is the eternal parts of who we are. Why is that? Because Jesus did not rise from the dead last weekend to make room for you and I to get into the tomb today. He did not rise from the dead to make room in the grave for you and I to die an early death. I have no doubt, no doubt in my mind that people who have made a decision for Christ on this earth, breathe their last, they get to heaven, and God says to them, why are you here? You weren't supposed to be here for another 20 years. Psalm 139 talks about, we talk about all the time, the books of heaven that have been written for our lives. I want to live out every page that God has dreamed for me. How many people get to heaven and God says, you see all of those books over there, those were all the days that you did not get to live because you did not take care of yourself. I don't want to hear him say that to me, and I don't want him to, I don't want you to hear him say that to you. 
part of this idea of being courageous is that we have got to recognize that these bodies that God has given to us, that they are on loan from God. That's going to be our first point that we get to. And we have a responsibility to care for everything that God has entrusted into our hands. All right, listen to these stats from the Center for Disease Control. Heart disease and stroke, the principal components of cardiovascular disease, are the first and third, cancer is second, first and third leading causes of death for both men and women in the United States, accounting for nearly 40% of all deaths. 40% of all deaths deal with cardiovascular disease. Over 927,000 Americans die of cardiovascular disease every year, which amounts to one death every 34 seconds. That's 158 deaths during our 90-minute service tonight. Listen to this. Listen to what they say. Largely due, largely due to preventable conditions. It's powerful, isn't it? Where is the voice of the church today that stands up and says, we can't let all of our issues with self-control that we know that we've got to deal with when we make a decision for Christ and just allow them to run rampant over here in socially acceptable ways. This idea of self-control means that we have got to rule over the life that he's given to us, and part of that life is this physical body, and it's the body that he's given to us so that we can, the eternal part of who we are. I heard somebody say one time, it's just transportation. It is transportation, but it's the transportation that we need to fulfill a destiny, and we want to fulfill every page of God's book that he's dreamed for us. All right, so we're going to do three tonight. The first one is this, the courage of conviction, I'm on loan. I'm on loan. The courage of conviction, I'm on loan. I'm going to give you three I will statements, one's connected to each of the points, and I'm hoping that you're going to learn these. You put them on your refrigerator, you put it in your journal, read through them every morning, that we want these to not be I hope I can or maybe I should, but come on, I will live. I will live with the courage of conviction that my body is on loan from God. I will live with the courage of conviction that my body is on loan from God. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to read these to you. This is Psalm 50, beginning in verse 12. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 12, and then we're going to do another psalm here. If I were hungry, God says, I would not tell you. For all of the world is mine and everything in it. For all the world is mine and everything in it. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, many of you know this, for God bought you with a high price. What price? The price of the life of his son, Jesus Christ. For God bought you with a price, so you must honor God. Now think of all the things that the Apostle Paul could have said next. He's talking about the death of Jesus Christ for the world. How all the things he could have said. All the things. And you know what he says? Honor God with your body. Honor with your body. Why? Because he knows that Jesus Christ died, that we could be reconciled with God so that we could begin to walk in the destiny that you and I, that God dreamed for us from the foundations of the earth. And he knows that if we do not take care of this body, we're going to go to the grave early and that destiny will remain unfulfilled. And he's saying to the church of Corinth, and he's saying to us tonight, don't do that. Don't be that person. Honor God with your body. Psalm 24, 1, that's a life verse for me. I have a handful of verses that are life verses for me. And I made a decision to be a Christ follower in December of 1990. And in 1991, I came across, I was reading through the Bible, just like we're doing, reading through the Bible in a year. And I came to, the, to, to Psalm 24, and, and that verse just took hold of my heart. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It changed the way that I thought when we get to overspending, we're going to be talking about that a lot. It changed the way that I viewed everything about my life, that everything that I have belongs to God, and he's entrusted it to me to care for it. I'm telling you, when you think of your body that way, it changes the way that you treat it. It changes the way that you treat it. When we act under the premise that this, whatever this is, the fill in the blank, belongs to someone else, we make way for the courage to say, I'm on loan. So several years ago, when we were living in Mechanicsville, we had been working in the, in the yard. All I despise yard work. If you've, no, right? If you've been coming to this church any amount of time, I have an ongoing conversation with Adam. I am angry at you for the curse of having to toil over the ground. 
This morning, I had to get up early, drive to Gloucester to buy a lawnmower from Craigslist. I know, I know. I cried the whole way there and the whole way back. When I got home, I unloaded. I said, Derek, come here. I want to show you something. Yeah. Praise God for children that are old enough to take on responsibility like a lawnmower. Despise yard work. So we've been working in the yard all day. We're tired, and our neighbor comes over. He knows that we don't have a sprinkler, and, and he says, hey, I want, why don't you bar the sprinkler? You guys are working hard on your yard, and if you don't water it, you know, it's, the grass isn't going to make it. And I said, that's part of my plan. I want it to die, so I don't have to keep cutting it. But Vanessa came out too soon, so then I had to accept it, right? So he gives me the sprinkler. It's got a big spike on it. It's got these settings so that you can throw water how far you want it and then how wide, right? It has all these fancy settings, so we get it just right. And the plan is, because we just have one, that we're going to move it around the yard right throughout the, the evening as we're just kind of hanging out. And so it's, we put it in the first place, and, you know, every 15 minutes we're going to move this thing, and so 15 minutes is up. And I say, Vanessa, the sprinkler needs to be moved, right? She pretends like she doesn't hear me. You play the same game in your house. And so then I have to get up and go outside and do it. And so I go out and get upside right, get outside. And I reach, right, the hose is connected to the back end of the sprinkler. And I reach and I grab the hose and I pull it out of the ground because I'm going to move to the next place. And I learn something about physics in that moment. That the spike on the bottom of the sprinkler serves a purpose other than just to point it in the direction that you want it to go. It stabilizes it. And when you actually remove it from the ground, it acts like a helicopter that's flying without a pilot, right? So here I am, I'm standing in the yard and water's going, I'm soaking wet within about 15 seconds and I'm telling you, every word that I learned that I used to know is right on the verge of my tongue. I'm convinced that my neighbor's looking through, let's see what the pastor's gonna say now. Come every, you're like, he's calling his wife and kids, right? I'm telling you, I wanted to destroy that sprinkler. I, everything inside of me wanted to throw that thing on the ground, and with my big honking feet, I wanted to stomp the life out of that piece of plastic. I did. You've been there before, right? You get angry, you just want to break something. I wanted to break that sprinkler. And all of a sudden, this little voice inside of my head says, right, that's Ken's sprinkler. It's Ken's. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. So what do I do, right? I get control of that thing. I stick it back in the ground. I go inside, right? The sprinkler had a future because it belonged to someone else. <laughs> what about you? What about you? This body that we have, it does not belong to us. It belongs to God. And if we do not get a revelation for that truth, we will continue to mistreat ourselves in ways that just breaks God's heart. He says to us, hey, that doesn't belong to you. Can you imagine if I had stomped on that sprinkler, Ken, come out, the conversation that he would have had with me? God wants to have a conversation like that with us so oftentimes. Hey, that body's not yours. What are you doing to it? Treat it better. Treat it better. Matthew 21, 33 to 41. Come on, Matthew 21, 33 to 41. Listen to another parable. Jesus says there was a man, a landowner, who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it. He built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers, and he went away. And when the grape harvest drew near, he sent his slaves to the farmers to collect his fruit. But the farmers took the slaves. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first group, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his only son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmer saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let's kill him and take the inheritance. So they seized him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? Everybody in the crowd knew the answer, right? Everybody's shooting their hand up. I don't know if Jesus did giveaways, but right? They know the answer. He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease the vineyard to other farmers who will give him his produce at the harvest time. You and I, we read that story and we go, How, what's wrong with those people, right? We read the scripture, we judge. 
We read the, and we say, how could they be so foolish to think that they would get away with it? How could they be so foolish to not realize that what they had did not belong to them? And God says to me, he says to you, come on, I'm preaching to myself tonight. He says to all of us, you do that with your body every day. It does not belong to you. Treat it as if it's on loan, and I'm telling you, it will revolutionize the way that you live your life. All right, number two, courage of conviction. I'm in control. The courage of conviction. I'm in control. This is our second I will statement we're learning tonight. I will live with the courage of conviction that my appetite is subject to my control. Come on, let's read it again. I will live with the courage of conviction that my appetite is subject to my control. To my control. All right, let's read some verses. This one is Proverbs 23, 1 through 3. Proverbs 23, 1 through 3. While dining with the king, pay attention to what is put before you. If you're given to gluttony, listen to what Solomon says, the wisest person who's ever lived. If you're given to gluttony, put a knife to your throat. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? Scripture gives us perspective, doesn't it? Put a knife to your throat. Don't desire all the delicacies, for he might be trying to trick you. Now, you might be reading that and saying, I'm not sure how that pertains to me because I'm probably never going to dine with the king, and if I do, he's not really going to care about my influence and favor enough to try to trick me out of something. But this is a fill-in-the-blank text. There's lots of fill-in-the-blank texts in the Bible. See, because it might read for us, while on a fast... Pay attention to what is put before you. If you're given to gluttony, put a knife to your throat. Don't desire the delicacies, or you might betray your vow to God. Maybe it reads like this, while you're on vacation. Everybody say, ouch. While you're on vacation, pay attention to what's put before you. If you're given to gluttony, put a knife to your throat. Don't desire all the delicacies, or you might undo the hard work that you've done over the last six months. It's a fill-in-the-blank text. The part of the text that has such meaning to us is God giving us perspective on how tragic a lack of control over our appetite is. Romans 6, 12, listen to this, what Paul's writing to the church of Rome, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything because of the grace of God, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. We are supposed to have dominion over our lives, and the capacity we have to have an appetite is a great gift that God has given to us, but he did not give us it to rule over us, but so that we can rule over it and it can serve us in all the ways that are healthy and all the ways that are right. Does God want us to enjoy food? Sure he does, or he wouldn't have given us a palate, right? Does he want us to enjoy food? Sure he does. God bless, that's why he put pigs on the earth. Give me some bacon, right? But he did not give us an appetite so we could put ourselves in an early grave. We are supposed to be in control of ourselves. When we reject the lie that we are a victim of our appetite, we make way for the courage to say I'm in control. When we reject the lie that we are a victim of our appetite, we make way for the courage to say I'm in control. The Master and Commander, that's one of my favorite movies. Anybody seen that movie? I love that movie. My boys finally got old enough. Claire, too, we got to watch that last year. All the movies I can't wait to watch with my kids. I love the art of film. It's one of my favorite things to do in my downtime. I love film. It's one of my favorite movies. Captain Jack Aubrey, he's the captain of the HMS Surprise. There's this one part at the end where they're getting ready to go into battle and he says to the men, sharps the word, quicks the action. I have no idea what that means, but I like to say it for days after we watch that movie or head to Walmart. Come on! Quicks the word, sharps the action. That is scary, isn't it? You want a pastor that's vulnerable and authentic in the pulpit. I'm going to start tweeting that all week, right? There's a powerful scene in this movie. They're chasing the French privateer, the Acheron, and it sails around Cape Horn. Now, the Panama Canal hasn't been built yet, and so if ships are going to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific, they've got to sail around the bottom tip of South America. It's one of the most treacherous waters on Earth. The weather systems, the currents. 
So the HMS Surprise is trying to make the turn. It gets caught in a storm, and there's a young man, a member of the crew, he's up on the top of the mast, and the wind breaks the mast. He gets thrown out into the tumultuous ocean with all the mast, and the rigging and all that rigging is tied to the ship, and it's serving like this many thousand pound anchor that's going to pull the ship under the water. The problem is that the young crew member, he's out in the water holding onto the rigging. His best friends at the top with the captain and some of the officers, and they know they have a decision that they got to make. Are we going to cut these ropes? It's going to cause his death. Are we going to risk the life of the crew? Now, the crew's in the hull of the ship. They don't know what's happening, but they just feel the ship listing. And they know what they have to do. They get out the hatchets, and they begin to hack away. It's a powerful scene at all those cables and cords, and all of a sudden, it just cuts loose. The ship rights itself. All the people in the hull begin to cheer and shout, and everybody on the deck begins to cry. It's a powerful moment. It's a powerful moment. And then that young man, he just drifts away with that rigging to his death. So why are we talking about that story tonight? Because many of us, we form an emotional attachment to food that is unhealthy, and it will be like an anchor that will drag you to an early grave. There has got to be something inside of us that says, I love my God and my destiny more than my friend food. And for some of you tonight, you've got to be willing to let that relationship go. It's not good. And your life is tethered to it in unhealthy healthy ways. If you got your Bible, you can turn to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to hit this one, then we're going to do one more. Daniel chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. It says, The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank, and they were to be trained for three years. This is the, the Babylonian captivity. Babylon has come in. It's conquered Israel. It's taken away many people. And he identified some of the, the young men that were going to be in his court. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. And among them, from the descendants of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them different names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, right? Because the Mosaic law has very strict provisions for Jewish people, what they can and cannot eat. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself, and God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official. Yet he said to Daniel, My lord the king assigns your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than those in the other young men of your age. You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard, Come on, because he is a man of courage. He does not back down. He said to the chief official that had been assigned to him and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink and then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them in this matter. He tested them for 10 days, which means he only gave them the vegetables and the water that they were permitted to have. And after 10 days... They looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them the vegetables. It's a powerful story. It's important to understand, too, these are teenage boys. No person is ever as hungry as a teenage boy. All of us who have teenagers, we're all going to be having part-time jobs at Starbucks, right, just to pay the grocery bills. So they're teenage boys, right? at a time in their life where they could not be more hungry. And they're also at the most emotionally vulnerable time in their entire life. Many of them, their families have been slaughtered through the Babylonian conquest. A lot of them have been taken into captivity. Only a few are having an opportunity to live in the king's court, but the other ones, they're just, they're dying by the hundreds every day from the deplorable. They were just slaves captured in battle. And even these, even though it seems as though, right, they've got it made, they're still slaves to an occupying government. If there were ever a time where somebody said, oh, I deserve to eat what I want, it was Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're talking about this story in the context of this side being in control because this is the other place where we get ourselves into trouble. We eat because we justify it because we're having a bad day. We eat because we justify it, right? Because life is sometimes you've been having a bad day for three years, right? Life sometimes it's hard. 
but it cannot give us permission to mistreat these bodies that belong to him. We cannot let emotional feelings of depression and despair and hardship, oftentimes that are absolutely legitimate that we have those feelings, but we cannot cross the line of saying, because I've had a bad day, I deserve to be out of control. God says you never have the right to be out of control. You must have dominion over your life, good days and the bad days. You're on loan, be in control. All right, come on, let's do one more. You want to do one more? Courage of conviction, I'm his home. The courage of conviction, I'm his home. Come on, I'm on loan, I'm in control, I'm his home. I will live with the courage of conviction that my life is a home for God. I will live with the courage of conviction that my life is a home for God. We're going to put these notes online so you'll be able to get those if we're moving through them faster than you'd like. 1 Corinthians 3.16, listen to this. Don't you realize, this is Paul talking to the church of Corinth, that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. Come on, the creator of the universe, if you've made a decision for Christ, lives in you. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not ourselves. And 1 Peter 2, 5 says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, God lives inside of you. It is not some poetic idea that God put in the Bible just to inspire us. It is a living reality. The moment, that's why we say when a person makes a vow of devotion to Christ, we say that they take their first spiritual breath. The one who created the universe wants to be inside of you. He wants to be inside of you. He wants to make you his home. When we wrestle with the sacredness of our lives, we make way for the courage to say, I'm his home. When we wrestle with the sacredness of our lives, we make way for the courage to say, I'm his home. Now, some of you tonight, you might have already heard, had this thought. That's easy for you to say, right? Come on. Anybody thought that yet? Don't raise your hand. Mr. Skinny, that's easy for you to say. You got some nerve up here talking about that, right? You see me as the sprinkler that you want to step on. <laughs> I graduated college in 1989. Who here was not alive in 1989, right? I do not like any of you right now, right? 1989. I graduated from college in 1989. I weighed 175 pounds. In 1997, when Vanessa and I got married, I was just a pound or two shy of 200. Just a pound or two shot, 200. Those first couple of years that we were, we were married, we were both in a weight-gaining cycle. You ever been in a weight-gaining cycle? That's a nice way of saying when you're out of control. So you go from 175 to 200. You know, right, if you don't change anything, you're going to be knocking on the door of 210. Then you're going to be knocking on the door of 225. See, the funny thing about weight-gaining cycles is they do not stop until you do something to change it. So we talked about a lot of the things, but one of the things that has governed our lives is that we believe in the sacredness of life. We believe in the sacredness of life that speaks to us about many things that we believe in, but one of the most important things that it speaks to us about is that God lives inside of us. I'm his home. When you have people over you, right, you want to get your house ready for the guests. We hope that you get your house ready for the guests, right? What, what are we doing to get our lives ready for God? It's his home. It's his home. Right? So we've established some benchmarks. For me, it's 185. I'm not trying to go back to write my senior year in college. 185, that's my mark. I've been standing on that mark for 10 years now. For 10 years, that's my mark. Do I get off that mark sometimes? Yeah, sure we do, right? We all do. We come through the holidays. We go on a vacation, right? There's, being in control doesn't mean that sometimes you don't just give yourself some liberties that you can enjoy, but you set limits on what those liberties are, and that's still being in control. And then you have a benchmark, and you work your tail off to get back to the mark that you've set for yourself. Whatever healthy mark that you prayerfully consider that makes sense for you. 
It's not just about weight loss, right? You can be thin and still be unhealthy. You can be thin and still have one foot in the grave. It's taking the time, going to the doctor, getting a plan, getting, what's your blood pressure, right? What's your blood sugar? What's your cholesterol? You are a home to the creator of the universe. And being fit and healthy doesn't happen by chance. It does for a very few select people, and we do not like those people, admittedly so, right? But that's the exception. We are a home to our God. Are we taking care of the house that he wants to live in? Come on, this is our last text that we're going to dig around in. Oh, I love this one, Acts 10, 9 through 16. Acts 10, 9 through 16. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop about noon, and then he became hungry and he wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. It means he began to have a vision from God. We're going to be talking about that when we get done with this series. We're not hitting the brake. We're putting the we're hitting the gas pedal. Are you with me? So after this series, we're going to be talking about what does it mean to be a Pentecostal church in a modern-day world. We're going to talk about being 50-day people. We celebrate Easter, but, but what about Acts 1 and 2? The church should celebrate what happened 50 days after Easter. That gets overshadowed. Come on, not at the City Life Church. Courageous people. So he went into a visionary state. So we're going to be talking about that, having visions from God. He, he saw heaven open and an object coming down that resembled a large sheet being lowered to the earth in its four corners. And in it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. Then a voice said to him, one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Praise the Lord. Verse 14, no, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So for his whole entire life, he's kept the dietary laws of Moses. Again, a second time, a voice said to him, what God has made clean, you must not call common. This happened three times. Three seems to be a pattern for Peter. And then the object was taken up into heaven. It was taken up into heaven. It changed the world for Christian Jews on that one day. On that one day, God said to Peter, one of the apostles, the, the time and the era of dietary laws in Moses' writings were closing that book. Jewish Christians are now free to eat whatever they want. Jesus set it up when he said, it's not what comes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of his mouth. And Peter ate things that day he has never eaten before. I'm telling you, when he went down for lunch, people were like, I thought he was Jewish. I thought he was Jewish, right? I think Peter went downstairs right away and he said, where's the barbecue? <laughs> Change the world on that day. And if we're not careful, we'll read that story and it gives us a false sense of permission to be out of control. But this story is about the what, not about the how much. It's about the what, it's not about the how much. And you might be here tonight, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to worship we close. You might be here tonight and you're saying, Friday, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start. If you only know one thing to do, start where Peter started. You spend time with God before you eat. It'll change your life. If you have a problem, I'm telling you, if you have a problem, every time before you put food in your mouth, Take a few moments like Peter did and just pray. If you will make God a part of your decision-making process before you eat, it will change what happens at the table. What would happen instead of just doing our little perfunctory prayers that we often pray where we're not even thinking about what we're saying before we eat? What if during those moments, what if in the moments that leading up to that, even before we get to the table, we're just kind of saying to ourselves, I'm on loan from God. I'm going to be in control. I'm his house. What if you had a conversation with God before every single meal? It would change the way that we live. We're not going to back down. We're not going to back down. So maybe you've noticed already some of the pictures up here and what they relate to. Anybody figure that out yet? Yeah, come on, the Titanic. It's the 100th anniversary this weekend of the sinking of the Titanic. 
The RMS Titanic was a British passenger liner that sank in the North Atlantic Ocean on April 15th of 1912, and after colliding with an iceberg during her maiden voyage from Southampton, England to New York City, and the sinking of the Titanic caused the deaths of 1,514 people. In one of the deadliest peacetime maritime disasters in history, she was the largest ship afloat at the time of her maiden voyage, and she was built between 1909 and 1911, and she carried 2,224 people. Though she had advanced safety features, she carried only enough lifeboats for 1,178 people. That was a third for that trip of her total passenger capacity. On April 14th, that's today, 1912, four days into the crossing, about 375 miles south of Newfoundland, she hit an iceberg at 11.40 p.m. The glancing collision caused Titanic's hull plates to buckle inwards in a number of locations on her starboard side, that's her right side, and opened five of her 16 watertight compartments to the sea. Over the next two and a half hours, the ship gradually filled with water and sank. Just before 2.20 a.m., Titanic broke up and sank bow first with over 1,000 people still on board. Those in the water died within minutes from hypothermia caused by immersion in the freezing ocean and the 710 survivors were taken aboard the lifeboats by the RMS Carpathia a few hours later. One of their most important legacies was the establishment in 1914 of the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, which still governs maritime safety today. Come on, stand with me we prepare our hearts for worship. You see, all the pictures that were up there tonight are some survivors and some people that, that didn't make it. That one at the end, or one that you saw often, was a young man who died, and he had sent a postcard to a friend telling him about his trip. The letter survived, obviously, but not himself. You know what did not happen at the end of the sinking of the Titanic? Transatlantic travel didn't end, it went up. You know what didn't happen at the end of the sinking of the Titanic? The shipbuilding industry didn't come to its demise. It went up. Pleasure cruises didn't come to an end. We all know that, right? It's only grown and risen over time. It's important that we get this because as terrible as a tragedy as that is, as terrible as a tragedy as that is, they did not allow the tragedy to dictate their tomorrows. And you might be here tonight and you're saying, Fred, you do not know how many times I have tried before to do the things that you're talking about and I'm just tired of failing. Come on, I'm saying to you, that was yesterday, tomorrow's a new day. Tomorrow's a new day. You don't give up. You try again. You're too precious to God. You're too precious to God. Father, as we worship together, we pray that this is going to be a, a supernatural moment for some people that are gathered here tonight. This is going to be a supernatural moment for some people that courage is going to well up in their heart. And if they do not have the capacity to feel courage on their own, that you're going to plant it there out of heaven and they're going to face tomorrow like it's a new day. No matter, how, no matter how often they failed in their yesterdays, that tomorrow is a new day. Your mercies are new every morning, that they're not going to back down from the challenge that you've given to them, that they are alone from you, that they've got to be in control, and that you want to live inside of that body for as many days as you've granted them to have from the foundations of the earth. Let's worship together.
So I want to read these verses over you as a blessing tonight as we leave. This is out of Romans 8, beginning in verse 37. It says, No, in all things, come on, you are more than victorious through him who loved you. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we say together tonight, we want to be a people of courage. Find us so. Find us so that tomorrow for all of us is going to be a new day. It's going to be a new day. That we're on loan. That we're in control. And that we are your home today and forevermore. In Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.